Would you pray with me? God, we come before you this afternoon and this morning, um, and we ask that we be humbled. We ask that any distractions would be put aside so that we can focus on you and your word. I ask that you would keep me humble as we, we learn from your word, and I just ask that you would clear our minds of anything else that would fight for our attention, Lord, because all we want here is to learn from you. All we want is for you to be glorified. Amen. Amen. Good afternoon and good morning for those watching. My name is Nikki. Um, I'm usually over there leading music with Mackenzie. And most of you know that for the past few weeks, we have been going through our annual Pillars of the Church series. Um, two weeks ago, Jacob preached on the centrality of Christ, and last week, Jeremy preached a message on the sufficiency of Scripture. Uh, the last two pillars of Risen Hope are family of faith and love where you live. And today, we'll focus on elements of what it looks like to be a family of faith. And continuing with the theme of pillars in the Psalms, we're going to set up base camp in one of the Psalms. So if you'd open your Bibles to Psalm 133, we'll get set up. Psalm 133, a Psalm of Ascents of David. It says, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Being a born-again believer means we are part of God's family. We are a family of faith. We have been adopted into this family, and we've been united together by our faith in Jesus Christ. What does that mean, though? And how does it relate to unity in the family of God? The unity that it sings about in Psalm 133? This year has turned us all on our head in one way or another, but one of the most aggressive trials that it has put the church through is it has truly tested our unity. It's been made very clear that the world, and broadly speaking, the human race, does not have what the psalmist is talking about in 133. This year has shown a stark light on the true condition of the world's heart, which is the same heart that we used to have. Ephesians 4, which we'll be spending some time in later, instructs us to put off the old self. It's fascinating to read through these verses and see how everything that we're no longer in, everything we're told to put off, are the very things that the world has showcased this year. We're told to put away falsehoods. We're told to be angry without sinning or giving opportunity to, to the devil. No corrupting talk should come from our mouths. We're to let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away along with all malice. Titus 3.3 supports this when Paul says, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. 
Before this year, I normally would not be a person that watches the news a lot or would pay much attention to anything or even go past headlines alone. But even I, when coming across news stories this year, have seen all of those elements and been able to recognize them more exposed than in the past. And truth be told, we shouldn't be surprised by this. After all, it's a fallen world. But the thought that I want to start with is this. Do we, the church, the family of God, still look like this? Has the exaggerated weight of this year exposed division and enmity and strife in God's people and in Risen Hope? I know that's a heavy and confronting mindset to begin with, but God's holy word instructs us to examine ourselves and to test ourselves through the lens of scriptures. And my hope is that through this psalm, we may recognize what biblical unity is and why it's important, and that we may be encouraged and spurred on to live it out by the power of the Holy Spirit. This psalm was a blessing to me as I sought the scriptures to speak on unity and being a family of faith. It's only three verses long, and because of that, it's really hard to miss the point of it. That being that unity is good. Unity is great. Psalm 133 is labeled a psalm of ascents. These were songs that Jewish pilgrims would have sung together on their way to Jerusalem for any of the three great feasts. I, I love that picture, just that, especially in context of family of faith and unity, that as God's people were coming together, they're singing this song about unity. And let's keep that in mind, that the truths that we're looking at here are not just applicable to us right now, Risen Hope, or even the New Testament church, but it's a transcendent truth that applies to the entire family of God from beginning to end. So verse one says, behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. There's an emphasis here that we don't wanna meet, don't wanna miss before we jump into the topic of unity. Why does David say good and pleasant? Those are different words and it's intentional. The whole theme of this Psalm is building on how our unity in the family of faith has profound value. The word used for pleasant is the same word that would be used to describe how sweet sounding or musical something is. Think about that. Our unity is a sweet sounding blessing. Our unity is the song of our oneness in Christ. So with the aim of understanding how pleasant it is to behold unity in God's family, let's ask the question, what does unity look like in the church? What should it look like? I think we all have a generally accurate answer to that if we're asked that. Unity is families getting along. It's when we work together for a common goal. It's when conflicts are resolved without, in a peaceable way. But the Bible goes further than a surface picture. The scriptures give us instructions and prescriptions for being in unity. The New Testament is richly saturated with verses and instructions on our unity and behavior. So I wanna focus on a section of verses in Romans 12 first, if you'll turn there with me. In some Bible versions, this section, it'll be verses nine through 18, is titled Marks of the True Christian. So don't miss the pattern in these instructions. Even in this short exhortation from Paul, the, the theme of oneness is regular and it proves that unity is one of the most immediate outward displays of holiness in this world. 
it reveals that unity is a spiritual blessing that cannot be separated from the family of God and its effectiveness for the furtherment of the kingdom. We can't afford to take these instructions lightly. Romans 12. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Do you see how there are examples of what it looks like to be a family of faith woven through these instructions? Verse 10 says, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. This brotherly affection is the kind of love that's stereotypical in any blood relative family. Of course, there are exceptions. Sin has absolutely left its stain on the institute of family, but we all still know what the bonds of family look like. We know you're never supposed to turn your back on family. We know that brothers and sisters getting along is how it should be. We even see this truth when it comes to dysfunctional families. When there's hurt from a sibling or parent, or when someone's in the wrong, we all have that innate understanding that you don't give up. I mean, that's the common phrase, isn't it? What can I do? They're family. So in this command, we see that our unity is not only to be as strong as loyal and as loyal as blood relatives would be, but Paul's instruction goes past that to a key element necessary if we're to have any effectiveness for the kingdom's sake. We're to do this in humility. We are to put each other first and recognize each other's value and gifts from the Spirit and in eagerly invite them. Paul continues in verse 13. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. The Greek word for contribute literally means to come into fellowship with and to become a partner. We are to be partners in each other's needs. And I think Risen Hope has been blessed with experiencing this already. We're a young church, but the members of our body have been afflicted in many ways and faced various troubles. And this verse has a clear resonance with how Psalm 133 uses the word dwell when talking about our unity. That word wasn't there by accident. It's not just how good and pleasant it is when there's unity. It's when we dwell in unity. Our unity is close proximity. It is sharing life together. And I know the phrase close proximity might cause some tension in light of current mandates or convictions or emotions that have resulted from the virus outbreak, and we'll address that. But we can't ignore that more often than not, the needs that Paul is talking about, the needs of fellow saints, that they have had and they're currently having, needs don't stop. They're all needs that cannot be met by a passing effort. They require and have required a coming alongside and sharing. This involves the giving of our time and our presence. 
That's why the verse continues to implore us to seek to show hospitality. We're not only coming alongside, but we're inviting in. We're dwelling together in unity. So does that mean that our any long distance or separated contribution to one another's needs isn't viable? On the contrary, I believe because we're a biblical family of faith and we're one in one spirit, we should be taking opportunities to pray, share, and communicate with each other with every chance we have. Restrictions from this world should increase our connection. As the surrounding verses teach, we can still rejoice with those who rejoice. We can still weep with those who weep. We can rejoice in hope together, be patient in tribulation, and be constant in prayer. This is how we're able to be part of the family of God around the whole world, to be one with them. We're able to share in the efforts and the needs of churches locally here in Kingsgate, all the way to missionaries in dangerous fields on the other side of the world. Understand that this truth is something that we should be active in especially in this time where our proximity and closeness can so tangibly feel blocked and restricted. If we're not sharing in the needs by physically coming alongside, we should be leaning in completely to how we are able to share. Are we praying more for each other's needs in place of giving our time and presence? If we're restricted to our households, whether it be for the sake of our health or any current mandates, are we filling our time with prayer for each other and for the sake of our unity? Paul goes on to say in verse 16, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. There's even more emphasis on humility here. We are to be of one mind, not divided like the world. A lack of humility is one of the ways that the enemy can divide us most quickly. In the verses just before this passage, verses three and four, Paul is imploring the body to not think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. He goes on, for as in one body, we have many members and the, men, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. So if we're divided, we cannot function as the whole body. We can't, sorry, we can't be har harmonious in our living. We can't afford to think of ourselves too highly and the gifts that God has given us, whether they be great or modest in measure. Because if we're depending, if we aren't depending on every member of the body, then we're simply falling short of how God intended the church to re represent him in this world. Paul seals this command in verse 16 by exhorting us to never be wise in our own sight. I love when we have practical instructions like this in scripture, something that it's yes or no. So we have this, this sign where if we begin to elevate ourselves in our own eyes, it's an immediate red flag that we're getting off track. And I know pride can really get in the way of that. I know it especially does for me. And it's just, it's such an encouragement to think about how much easier it is to notice those red flags when we're dwelling with people that love us enough to tell us about them and point them out, point out those blind spots. There's a key qualifier to unity that we passed over there, and it's gonna lead us into the significance about David's illustration in Psalm 133 and how good and pleasant unity is in the family of God. When Paul's beginning his illustration of one body with many members, 
He does not ignore. This is only true because we are one in Christ. Paul's given us a rich description of our unity. It's affectionate, it's humble, it's hospitable, it's a partnership, and it's sacrificial. In Ephesians, he calls this unity in the spirit. That's the name for what we've been describing. It's a unity that is rooted and created by the Holy Spirit of God, which takes us back to Psalm 133, if you'll turn back there with me. We'll read verses two and three. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. We're gonna focus on the significance of why David used Aaron in this description, but first, Let's recognize again how David uses building language in, the, in his description to emphasize his point about how important unity is to the family of God. When he's talking about the oil, this precious oil, it's referring to anointing and how oil would be put on the head. And if you picture it on the head, it's already something that's covering you and starting to saturate your skin. But David continues, he describes it as running down the beard so this is definitely not just a few sprinkles of oil. This is covering him. It is being poured out. The oil is actively saturating all of him so much that it continues to run down the collar of his robes. So he is completely covered. And as I pictured this, I, I couldn't help but think of something else in the church we participate in that has to do with being covered and being immersed, baptism. And I don't think it's by accident that the description of this anointing sounds so much like baptism as well. Why is that? I think the answer is found when we look at who is being anointed in this picture. It's a reference to Aaron being anointed as the high priest of Israel. His anointing would have been a tremendous blessing and occasion for Israel, as it represents a way for the family of God to access God himself. But why Aaron's anointing in the context of this unit, in the context of unity? What makes this applicable to risen hope being a family of faith? There's so many other biblical events that David could have pulled from that would communicate how very good unity is. But by God's spirit, he intentionally used the picture of Aaron, the person with arguably one of the most important spiritual roles in the, God of, in the family of God. And by doing so, he's directing our eyes and our ears to how the spirit is central to our unity. It's necessary for us to be a family of faith. As it says in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. We have been anointed by God's spirit into one family. Just as Aaron, the priests, just as Aaron and the priests were anointed by precious oil, for their spiritual role in God's people, we are baptized by the Spirit into one body. We're anointed for a unifying role in God's family. And this is a good thing. This is such a pleasant thing that it's worth comparing to how big a blessing it was for Israel to have direct and reliable access to God. This is why in the middle of this psalm, David is using imagery that so clearly reminds us of our anointing by the Spirit. 
because the goodness and pleasantness of our unity comes from that anointing. The unity in this family of faith is an immense blessing. It's a gift and function of our family that we didn't attain by our own efforts, but it is of God. And we were baptized into it when we were born again. Turn to Ephesians 4 with me, and we'll listen to what Paul has to say. He says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So just like in Romans, when Paul talks about unity, it's surrounded by marks of being a believer. It is a mark of being a believer. And notice that he said that we should be eager to maintain the spirit of unity and bond of peace. He doesn't use a word like we should be eager to cultivate or introduce um, unity in the spirit. We're to maintain it. It's because it's something we already have. It's something that became part of our identity the moment we responded to the calling. And it's by the Spirit only that we can minister and fulfill God's plan for unity. Without being in Christ, without being in the Spirit, without being adopted into his family, none of this unity is possible. We will always fall short of the instruction given if we don't have the help of the Holy Spirit. Two chapters earlier, in chapter two, if you wanna flip back there, we're reminded of how it is only by the Spirit that we have this unity. We're reminded of how we used to look before we had it. This is verses 11 through 22. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the laws of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father, so then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is why family faith is one of the four pillars of risen hope. 
The Bible is relentless in reminding us of who we were and who we are now. The New Testament constantly points us to our oneness in the Spirit and how it is a foundational mark of our salvation. And these reminders are never for the purpose of assurance alone, but they're meant to spur us on. Being a believer is an active role. Take a look at the language he uses in this passage. It's full of action. He says we can access the Father. We're being joined together. We're growing into a holy temple and we're being built together. So we should ask again, do we, the family of God, look like this? Does risen hope exude action and movement in sanctification? Are we growing together more and more every day? Is the unity in this family of faith a pleasant song being played and sweet to be heard? Or can we sometimes find ourselves more closely matched to the things of this world, to the things of our former selves? Do we ignore the hope that we have in God? Are we distracted from the peace given? And consequently, do we continue to be in bondage to the hostility that we actually have freedom from? Listen to Paul's reproof of the church at Corinth for lacking perseverance in the spirit. This is 1 Corinthians 3. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you weren't ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there's jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? May we humbly receive these words and respond with a heart that is focused on how we have been made new May we recognize how our unity in the spirit is truly life-giving life and identity-changing, like it described in Ephesians. May we be built together into one structure and one family that is aimed toward the life we have in Christ, rather than the hopelessness we had before. Let's turn back to Psalm 133 and look at the last verse. David says, it is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Mount Hermon was a towering peak at the north of Israel, and its melting snow, which could be the dew referred to in this psalm, was a major water supply for the Jordan River, which would have been used by much of Israel to live off of. This is a magnificent way that we see the blessing of our unity. The psalm even describes this water, this nourishment, as falling on the mountains of Zion. So just as the oil running down and immersing, so this nourishing blessing is raining down on God's people, completely covering them. And it isn't just temporary rain. This oil doesn't dry up. This blessing of unity that is inseparable from our belonging to Christ and the body, this blessing that points us to our transformation is being, our being made new and being brought into new life, it will endure forever. That's the Lord's command, life forevermore. In the New Testament, we call this blessing the gospel. It's the only blessing that matters for all eternity. And when we receive the gospel, we receive eternal life. 
This is the only source of true unity, and it comes to us through the sacrifice of Christ. In a little while, we'll be sharing in communion. Jesus instituted the Last Supper to be a reminder of what he was doing for us and what he has done for us. And I think it's safe to say that this is a year where the family of God, the church around the whole world, and risen hope here and now, this family of faith, take serious efforts to remember who we were before we were born again. Would you turn back to Ephesians 2 with me? I want to read these verses again with the intention of recognizing where we were before Christ made a way for us to be a part of the family of God, starting in verse 12. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the laws of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Let's remember how we were not just separated from God, but we were immersed in the same depravity that this world is showcasing right now. We had nothing to do with the goodness and the pleasantness of this unity that's only possible through the Spirit. We were not part of a family of faith because we had no faith. We had rejected God's ways completely, the God who gave us life and air to breathe. We rebelled, and our sinful hearts listened only to what is right in our own eyes. And we're hopeless to do anything to make it right by our own power. We can't pay the price required. Sinning against an eternally perfect, perfect God requires an eternally equal and appropriate punishment. But we rejoice. If we are born again, if we're a part of the family of God, because we because God made a way for us not only to be free from that former life, but to have a new one completely. We rejoice because this is also available to those who are still lost. If we've recognized the path of destruction we were on and the destination of eternal doom that we deserve and our desperate need for saving, then we can throw ourselves on the mercy of Christ. We can repent and put our trust in him completely for our salvation. When we have that response, our debt is not only covered by his blood, but we are adopted into his family. We are given a new identity that separates us completely from this world. May we remember this so that we can chase after our king's heart and live out the unity and the spirit we've been so richly blessed with. May we as risen hope be able to step back and behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. May we truly be the holy family of faith that is possible by the, only by the spirit of the one true God. Let's pray together. God, you are life-giving. You are mighty to save.
Lord, for those of us who are found in Christ, we are a new creation. You have given us a new identity, an identity that already comes with this blessing of unity, with this being part of a family of faith. And God, I ask that you would use Risen Hope this year and going forward, let our unity be that sweet song. Even, even with this virus outbreak, Lord, even when we're confined to our households, let us be holy. Let the world still be able to see what is different about us. I don't know exactly what that would look like practically, Lord, but you give us instructions here how to start. Let us be humble, Lord. Let us take care of one another. Let us depend on you completely and rejoice because of how beautiful this unity is, Lord. I thank you for Risen Hope and how you have blessed us with this already. And I ask that we would pursue it, Lord, and maintain it. We thank you, Lord. You are so good. Amen.